0: On the 20th of November 2021, Spanish woman Beatrice Flamini, she entered into a 70 metre deep cave just outside of Granada in Spain. And for the next 500 days, she lived there alone in the dark. Her support team sent down food and water and clean clothes and and, and removed her waste. Remotely, they monitored her physical and mental well-being. But for the whole time, for the 500 days that she was down there, she didn't talk to anybody. She got no information about the outside world. She was completely cut off. And she just lived in her own little world. And remarkably, it seems that she enjoyed it. There were some hard moments, like when the cave was in, invaded by flies. You can imagine how horrible that would be. But she said that the time just flew by. So much so that when the t- the t- her team came to get her out, she said to them, What, already? Surely not. Haven't even finished my book. Now I think some people, they have an idea that living a holy life kind of looks like what Beatrice did. For those 500 days. That like the hermits of the past, we need to cut ourselves off from others. And live in isolation and seclusion, disconnected from the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Last time eh, in Hebrews, if you were with us, We saw that if we've trusted in Jesus, we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, into an incredible relationship with God. And so we were challenged, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. In response to all that God has done for us, we need to live a life of gratitude, of respect, of wonder, of worship. But what does that life of worship look like? What does it look like to live a life of worship to God? Well, it's not one of isolation and seclusion. Neither is about stepping away from the everyday things of this world and and just focus solely on God and His Word all day, every day. Instead, it is a life that is firmly rooted in the everyday things of this world. And yet it is a life that is transformed. Because in those everyday situations... We're called to honour Christ by living a life of love, a better love. So we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. And in in, finally into our last chapter of Hebrews. It's been a, a bit of a journey, I think it's been over a year. We've been in this wonderful book of the Bible. So Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 6. And Lauren is going to come and she's going to read for us. Thank you, Anna. So it's uh, Hebrews 13, 6 Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Thank you, Lorna. I don't think many of us are surprised to read in verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers. That's because the Bible consistently calls each of us to love Others as brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this is what each of, the, each of the writers of the New Testament said. So Paul, he said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Peter, he wrote, he wrote love one another deeply from the heart. And John, he wrote, dear friends, let us love one another. So, the Bible consistently tells us that we need to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this love for each other is supposed to be the defining characteristic of the church. It's supposed to be the clear witness to our identity as followers of Jesus. Jesus himself said this. He said, John chapter 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if. You love one another. So this is a crucial part of how we impact this world. As a church, we want to have meaningful worship times. We want to have effective outreaches. We want to have engaging Bible teaching. We want to make use of the technology and and share the gospel as widely as possible. But Jesus said that if we want other people to see the reality of God in our lives and their need of a saviour, if we want people to see that, then we need to be a community who sincerely love each other. Our love for each other is supposed to be a signpost pointing people to Jesus. Why is that? Why would Jesus say that your love for each other should be that signpost to declare that we are followers of Jesus? Well, it's because the love that we share with each other is supposed to be better than the love that's seen in this world. Not because we are better, not because we're nicer people, not because it's not it's not thinking that we're better than the other people in the world. But it's because we've experienced a better love. A better love from Jesus. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 13 again. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As Jesus has loved us, so we are called to love each other. If we have put our faith in Jesus, then we have experienced a better love. A love that is active. It's not just warm affection or emotion. It's a love, a commitment to meet the other person's deepest need. And it's a love that's indiscriminate. Not based on background or beliefs or behaviour. It's a love that's unconditional. A love that was given to us when we were still sinners. When we were still in rebellion against God. It's a love that's faithful. Unchanging, unending, unfailing. And it's a love that's sacrificial. A love that led Jesus to come into this sin-cursed and fallen world to become one of us, to step into our pain, and ultimately to go to the cross and take upon Himself our sin. This is the better love that Jesus has expressed. And if we have experienced it for ourselves, if we have been overwhelmed by His love for us, if we've, been, we've experienced His forgiveness and grace, if our hearts have been transformed and are being transformed by His Holy Spirit, then this is the better love that we are called to express to each other. This is what John writes in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And it goes on, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So in response to Jesus' extraordinary love for us, we are called to demonstrate this extraordinary love for each other. I think it's really crucial for us to realize that we're called to demonstrate this extraordinary love to each other in very ordinary, everyday ways. Sometimes we think we need to do something big or something uh, ex- expressive or something wow in order to show this kind of love. But that's not what the writer talks about here. First of all, he says we need to express this love by offering hospitality. Look at verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers. In the first century, people often needed a safe place to stay for a night or two, or some food and some fellowship. There are many reasons for this. One of them was because many Christians were, were having to, to run away to, 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 to escape uh, uh, persecution and oppression where they were. There were also many te- travelling teachers and evangelists who also needed a place to stay every time they went to a new town. And in that culture, it was expensive to stay overnight at an inn and those places often had a really poor reputation. There weren't places you would want to go just to stay the night. And so hospitality, opening our doors and letting people in, was a a practical way that believers were called to express this Christ-like love. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Now, of course, our culture is very different. And our circumstances might make some of this a very difficult thing for us to do. And yet there are opportunities for each one of us to put this principle into practice. One of the ways that we could do this is to open our homes, to welcome uh, our visiting summer team. Uh, there's six people just now who are coming to visit with us for that week of summer camps and they're coming to stay with us and we could open our homes and let them stay. Give them bed and breakfast as they stay and work alongside us. That's one way to put this principle into practice. Or we can invite someone in and have, the, uh, have them over for dinner with us. Or if that's not possible because of our our living situation, then maybe we could just meet them for coffee in town. It's another expression of hospitality. There are so many ways that we can express the practical and emotional support that lies behind this practice of hospitality. And if we do this, We might end up more blessed than we could ever imagine. Look at verse 2 again. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, this refers back to the Old Testament again, as, as the writer of Hebrews often does. Back to Genesis chapter 18 this time with Abraham. Abraham saw three strangers. And he approached them and he offered them some a place to rest and some refreshments. Now, Abram, he had no idea who they were. He was just being hospitable. But later he understood that these were two angels and the Lord himself. Now, if we open up our homes eh, and, and offer hospitality to people... I don't know whether we're going to actually literally uh, have angels in our house. I don't know if we've ever had angels. They're very nice people, but I don't know if I'll describe them as angels. But it is true that we're often more blessed than we expected. They are an angel. They are a a messenger. What, what, What angel means? They are a messenger of God's grace to us. As we offer hospitality, we are often more blessed than even they are. But even more incredibly, if we do this, the Bible says that we are welcoming Jesus Himself. In His parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus said that He will say to the sheep, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you invited me in. And they're going to ask, well, how did we do that? Jesus, I don't remember doing that. And Jesus will explain. He went on to say, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Isn't that incredible? Whatever we do for the least of the brothers of Jesus, God's family, those who have trusted in Jesus, we do for Him. Jesus so identifies with His people that whenever we sincerely express love to His followers, we're expressing love to Him. Whenever we are serving each other, we are serving Christ. What an incredible opportunity we have to very practically, in a very normal way, serving Jesus today. But it's not just strangers we're called to serve. It's also those who are Suffering. Look at verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, prison ministry, reaching out with the gospel to those who are in prison for their crimes, is a really effective outreach and a really worthwhile ministry. As a result, many people have actually come to to faith in Jesus to experience real freedom while they're behind bars. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He's not talking about prison ministry, going up to the the, the local prison and and reaching out the gospel. If you're called to do that, great, go for it. But this verse is talking about those who have been in prison because of their faith in Jesus. They are persecuted Christians who are suffering because of their commitment to Christ. <clears throat> and the writer of Hebrews says that we should remember them. We should even remember them as if we were right beside them, in prison with them. And of course, that be, continues to be a reality today, doesn't it? Open doors. They declared last year. That 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith in 2022. 4,500 were detained or imprisoned. More than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed. And a staggering 360 million Christians lived in places of high level of persecution. But it's so easy to forget that, isn't it? Out of sight, out of mind. That's often the way, isn't it? We can live our lives in relative comfort and relative safety and forget all about our brothers and sisters who are struggling and suffering, being attacked because of their faith. But the great news is that God will never forget them. He's promised this in Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. What an incredible promise from God. And if we have God's love in our hearts, then we will want to be like God in this way and remember them too. We'll want to be informed about them. We'll want to pray for them. Even in some way, enter into their suffering with them. Because that's what Jesus does for us. Remember way back in chapter 4 of Hebrews? This beautiful verse, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus is our high priest, but he is not remote and aloof and disconnected from us. Yes, he's sitting at the Father's right hand in heaven. But he's not unaffected by our struggles and our difficulties. Instead, He sympathizes with us. Do you remember what that means? It means He suffers along with us. He knows what we're going through. He feels our pain. He shares our anguish. And if we love others as we have been loved then we will be willing to do the same. So Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Of course, in this church, we're, we're so blessed to not be living in an area of intense persecution, but there are some in our church family who are going through times of suffering right now. There'll be health issues, family crises, financial pressures, mental health struggles, spiritual difficulties. If we love each other, we'll not turn away from each other in those difficult times. Neither will we judge them or blame them. But we'll remember them. We'll be willing to suffer alongside them as if we were we ourselves were suffering. Love means that we're willing to suffer. So love for others doesn't just motivate us to hospitality, it also motivates us to sympathy. But thirdly also leads should lead us to purity and loyalty. Marriage should be honoured by all. This world has tried to redefine marriage, doesn't, hasn't it? Even in, in, the, in, in the legal sense, it has, in Ireland, redefined what marriage is. But the Bible is clear that marriage is God's design. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to hold to the biblical definition of it. No matter what our government or our nation or our society says. So, quoting from Genesis chapter 2, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So this is God's design for marriage. It's a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman to live in an exclusive, faithful, loving, and intimate relationship with each other. And so we as believers are called to honor that. I know that doesn't always work out in in life. I know that life is always complicated. And things happen. But we need to recognise the value and the worth of marriage. We need to see it as a precious gift from God. We need to seek to respect it, to guard it, to protect it, to treasure it as much as we can. Whatever our circumstances. And one of the ways that we do that is by keeping sexual intimacy only within marriage. I think that's what the writer means when he says that the the marriage bed should be kept pure. Of course, that's not what most people think today. Many people claim that love is love as long as it's between consenting adults. But the Bible disagrees. The Bible says that God will judge the adulterer and all all the sexually immoral. God is designed for this intimacy to be only enjoyed within a marriage covenant, between a husband and a wife. And so any sexual behaviour outside of marriage is wrong. And it will face God's judgment. That's because it's a rebellion against God. If we reject God's plan for marriage, we're rejecting God. But it's also a rejection of God's ultimate purpose for marriage. Some people think that God's ultimate purpose for marriage is, is children or is just companionship. And those those are great gifts. But there's a higher purpose in marriage. And that is that marriage is supposed to point to the perfect, the exclusive, the faithful, the loving, and the intimate covenant relationship between Jesus and His church. Jesus and His bride. Jesus and all the people who have trusted in Him. That's why Paul wrote, husbands love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We need to ultimately honour marriage because ultimately marriage points to Jesus. But there's one further way that we are called to live a better love. We're called to love selectively. Verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We live in a world that's obsessed with money. We know uh, lots of people say money doesn't buy happiness. And yet, so many people think that their lives would be sorted if only they had a little bit more money. There was a survey published last year, an international survey of different nations. And most people in general thought that they could achieve a perfect life, uh, an ideal life, if they only had $10 million. That's all it would take. Interestingly, though, in the States, they thought it would take at least $100 million. I don't know if that may say something about the expense of living in the States or something about Americans. I don't know. I'm not making any comment about that. But the Bible warns us against trusting in money. Trusting that money will give us the life that we long for. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Giving into the temptation of money is a trap. that traps us in our selfish desires and leads to ruin and destruction. And the ultimate reason for that is because you cannot serve both God and money. You have to choose. You can't serve both as masters. You can't trust in both. You can't depend on both. You cannot love both. So we need to be selective in our love. We need to choose to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And then we can live in contentment. Whether we have a little. Or whether we have a lot. That's because God has promised us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. It's a beautiful promise. It's one of my my favorite promises in the Bible. If we put our trust in Jesus then God has promised to always love us. To always be with us. To always watch over us. To always provide everything that we need to fulfill His purpose for our lives. That of course does not mean that we will always live a life of of health and wealth and happiness. But it does mean that no matter what happens in our lives, we can be convinced convinced that we have God. And that God is everything that we need. This is how C.S. Lewis put it once. He said, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. Did you get that? He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. And so, no matter what we face, what struggles, challenges, or dangers, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember, this was written to Christians who were, who had suffered persecution and were facing intense persecution. For them, this was no theory. This was not a a kind of, just an idea. This was a real reality. Their life was at risk. But they did not need to be afraid. Because they could know that God was with them, no matter what. He would never leave them he would never forsake them. So this is what a life of worship looks like. It isn't about seclusion and isolation from the world. It's not about stepping away from the everyday things of life and just focus on God. Rather, it's about expressing a better love in the everyday Aspects, everyday circumstances of life. It's about loving others sincerely, just as we have been loved by Jesus. It's about loving strangers, offering hospitality to them, as if it were to Jesus. It's about loving the suffering by sympathizing with them like Jesus. It's about loving our spouses by treasuring our marriage covenant that ultimately points to Jesus. And it's about loving selectively. Because if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need.